where they need to be open so that you can come in and uh, just take over. I pray that um, you would speak through Michael, you would speak through your word strongly. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. And if you would begin turning to First Peter chapter 2 this morning, we have uh, sort of turned a corner, though... I think in in Peter's thought, the first three verses of of chapter 2 really finish off uh, the long section in chapter 1 when when Peter is giving us commands, our responses to uh, how we should respond and embrace the gospel. Our salvation, that that truth that... um, he has caused us to be born again. I've given you in the past a, uh, a summary statement. We're going to look at it again this morning. Uh, here's what the book is about. We're going to add a few more things as we go along, but up to this point, we need to keep in mind is that Peter is writing to them and to us based on what God has done, how to live where they don't belong when they are facing difficulties. And as a reminder to you of of what that looks like, um, while this is minor compared to the difficulties that many of us face, uh, this is uncomfortable. This is not what I normally wear. We don't normally do a tie here. But as you see this each week, okay, this is about what I'm supposed to do when things aren't right. What life is supposed to be like when I'm uncomfortable, when I'm out of place, where I am, where I don't feel like I belong. Peter's writing to them and to me to say, look, here's what life is supposed to look like. And so what we have looked at up to this point is that God has has given them a, a wonderful salvation. Um, and, and that salvation sort of had three aspects to it. You want to go to the next one, Phil? Um, we looked at, there were really three time frames, but our salvation is worth waiting for. In the future is worth rejoicing in, in the present, and it has always been in the past and still is today worth sacrificing for so that we can pass it on to someone else. Our ancestors in the faith sacrificed that you and I might have the joy of knowing that God has caused us to be born again. And then our response to that, Peter began giving us these commands, things that we should do in response to that. Uh, We looked at the fact that we are to be holy as God is holy. And all that encompasses, and because that's an impossibly high bar, and yet still a requirement, we should set our hope completely on grace. And then a couple weeks ago, we looked at the fact that we are to live in the fear of the Lord. And then last week, that we were to love one another earnestly, and all that entails as a body of Christ. And I ask you during the week to think, what am I not willing to give up? I'm not willing to sacrifice for the sake of someone sitting in this room for a brother or sister in Christ. And so this morning, Peter 
It's going to end this section beginning in chapter 2, these first three verses, with the last command before he, in one sense, returns to truth. This wonderful truth, and then, oh, your response to that, and then, oh, there's, there's more. You think that's enough. Think what he's done so far is enough. There's more. Then he'll return to things that we should respond to because of that. So this morning we will look at the first three verses of, of chapter 2. Peter writes these words, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would... Um, as Brandon prayed, we need you and the power of your Spirit to open our ears to hear, our minds and our hearts to understand, to grasp. But ultimately, God, we really need you to affect our wills. Help us to trust you that we can be obedient in all that you've called us to be. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, there will be an outline up there. There's also some blank space in your bulletin. Uh, but I would encourage you... Um, to bring something besides the bulletin to take notes in. Bulletins get lost. You stick them in your Bible. They end up under the car seat. You go to Zaxby's. You give it to them for 10% off. Those notes are gone forever. Um, I really would encourage you to bring something to take notes. We remember what we write down far more than just what we listen to. So Peter begins with this command, and I, I want to summarize this. He wants us to long for the gospel. And you say, well, that word's not in here anywhere. I'm sure that's what he's talking about. He wants us to long for the gospel. He says in verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. What does he mean by that? If you have the New American Standard, it says, or the King James Version, it says, long for the pure milk of the word. Why are those so different? Why are they? Why does one say word and one say spiritual? That adjective that's modifying milk. Um, the idea that word spiritual really is is related to the word logos, the word word. Peter's just been talking about the fact that that they have been born again by imperishable seed, that word that was proclaimed to them, the gospel. So it's only natural that that he transitions as he does to this last command that that's still on his mind. Um, but the word really does mean spiritual. The same word that we see in, in Romans chapter 12 where he says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual or reasonable service of worship. That same word. Um, the Greek philosophers 200 years earlier used it to mean uh, rational thought. And then over time it, it came to to kind of move away from a, a mind aspect to a more spiritual aspect. And so it's, it's this spiritual milk. Where do we get the idea of word from? Well, it's from the word milk. Uh, that word doesn't show up very often in Scriptures, but when it does, and it's not talking about actual real milk that you would drink, when it's used as a metaphorical sense, it's always used for the foundational truths of the gospel. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 3, and then the writer of Hebrews uses it in Hebrews 5.12. Both of those in the context of, of saying, you know, 
by this time you need something more, but you're not mature enough. You still need milk. Paul says you need milk instead of meat. The writer of Hebrews says you need milk instead of solid food. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 2 and 3 and Hebrews 5, that milk that they need is the gospel. Paul tells them in, in 1 Corinthians 2, I sought to know nothing else among you but Christ Jesus and Him crucified. That's the gospel. You, and you need that again still, he says. He says in verse 3, No man can do anything unless he builds on the foundation of Christ. In other words, if you try to do anything other than Christ and Him crucified is the foundation of what your life is like, you're going to end up in the wrong place. It's like if your foundation is flawed, no matter how good your materials are, that building is eventually going to crumble. In Texas, we love football. We love it so much that there's a high school in North Texas that built a $60 million football stadium. And it won't be used in the fall because whoever built it made some mistakes and there are rather large cracks running through several large chunks of concrete that are supporting thousands of screaming football fans. If, if the foundation's not right, there's going to be problems. And Paul says that foundation is... Christ Jesus and Him crucified. The writer of Hebrews is the same thing when he says you need milk and not solid food and then he explains what that milk is. It's things like repentance, faith, baptism, probably referring to not just the water but actual the Spirit, and then the final judgment which we don't fear. That gospel truth. When we come to God in repentance through faith, and He changes us. He cleanses us. And so this milk is the gospel. And the reason we long for it is because, like a foundation, it affects every single aspect of our life. The question is, do you long for the gospel? Even those of, of you who say, well, I'm, but I'm mature, I'm, I'm beyond that. Can we move beyond that? And a, any just maybe cursory reading of Paul's letters know that you don't move beyond that. As he writes letter after letter and you read through his prayers, those prayers that they would understand God's love for them through Christ. We can never get away from our need for the gospel truth that God has sacrificed for us that we might be forgiven, that we might enjoy fellowship with Him. And so it's fitting that these last of these commands, He says, long for the gospel. In one sense, none of that other stuff is, is going to matter because if you don't long for the gospel, you won't live a holy life. You'll begin to think that you can do it on your own. If you don't long for the gospel, it's not a central part of your life, you won't set your hope completely on grace. You'll begin to set your hope on yourself or something else. If you don't long for the gospel, you won't love one another earnestly because 
selfishness will begin to reign in your heart if you don't continually remind yourself that God sacrificed that I would be forgiven. It's not possible. We're humans. We're prone to selfishness. We're prone to forgetting that there are other people exist, that God even exists. We long to replace Him with something else. And so Peter ends this section by saying, long for the pure spiritual milk. Long for the gospel. But there are hindrances to that. He begins and he ends with things that tend to get in the way of us doing that. And we're going to start with the the last one and go after the first one because there's a condition at the end. Peter gives us a condition. You need to long for the gospel if, he says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good. And so, my question, and something that we can't leave with today, because I think there's this, this elephant in the room of Christianity. Do we really believe that God is good? Because I think our, our culture and even the church in America has slowly and, and insidiously given us this idea that, that maybe God's not good, at least not all the time. Because they've taught us this truth that there are certain things that are good, and when those things don't happen, then things are bad. And in the back of our mind, if we're thinking that God is sovereign, that means, well, He, he, can't, he can't be good if bad things happen. And so my question is, do you really believe? Do you believe that God is good, not some of the time, but all of the time? Here's how I think this starts. Here's how it starts in my life. Maybe you can relate to this. It's good when tomorrow it's going to be 70 degrees. That's good because it's been cold and rainy and I'm ready for some warmth. That's good. And I thank God for that. And I should. Or it's good when all the bills are paid at the end of the month and there's still a little bit left. And I thank God for that. And I should. Or it's good when I'm experiencing health and I thank God for that and I should. Or it's good when I get an A on a test and I thank God for that and I should. Or it's good when the car is working. Or it's good when you get a raise and we thank God for that and we should. Or it's good when work is going well or work is going at all and we thank God for that and we should. Or it's good when I have enough to eat and we thank God for that and we should. It's good when I live in a a time of relative peace in the land and we thank God for that and we should. It's good when we can come and worship in freedom without fear of persecution and we thank God for that and we should. But then the subtlety is we sort of just, we, 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 we tweak our thoughts a little bit. God is good because the sun is shining. God is good because I made an A on the test. God is good because I have enough to eat. God is good because... The cars are working. God is good because there's money left over at the end of the month. 
God is good because I can worship in freedom. God is good because there's peace in the land. God is good because work is going well. And that's a very subtle shift. The problem is, if God is good because all those things, what do I begin to think? Maybe not out loud, maybe not, but in the back of my mind, what do I begin to think when, when the sun is not shining? If God is good because the sun shines, what is He when it's not? If God is good because I'm healthy, what is He when I'm not? If God is good because there's money left over at the end of the month, what is He when I'm not? Or when there's not? If God is good because I made an A, what is He when I've made a C minus? If God is good because there's peace in the land, what is He when there's not? If God is good because I can worship in freedom, what is He when I can't? And there's a subtlety that I think has, has crept into American Christianity when we're happy and therefore God is good. We're comfortable, therefore God is good. We're content, therefore God is good. We are benefiting from life, therefore God must be good. Versus God is good. You see, Peter's writing to a group of people that might look around their circumstances and go, I don't know what's going on. If we're right, that these are people who have been forcibly removed from Rome and made to set up in a new place in Asia Minor where they're not comfortable, where they're not familiar, where they don't want to be, and because of their faith, they're undergoing persecution and difficulties and trials. Would we look around and say, that's good? You see, I'm not sure that Peter's readers would look around their life and go, I'm content, I'm happy, I'm comfortable because of my circumstances. And if we buy into the lie that God is good because of circumstances then we don't understand what Peter's talking about. Because he's not saying, pursue the gospel, seek the gospel, long for the gospel if you're happy, if you're content, if life is benefiting you. That's not what he's saying when he says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good. Not if you have tasted the general mercy that God gives to all mankind at times. Because if, if, if we base our understanding of God's goodness on the situation, then really God is no different than the Greek and Roman gods who are very capricious and it's kind of like, you know, whatever we feel like today. And, and then you have to do something to make Him happy so that you can be happy. Versus living your life with the foundation of the gospel where God has done everything for you already. Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on Psalm 84, um, where David, let me read a short section, Psalm 84, um, 
Oh, sorry, not David. Um, in verse 10, the sons of Korah, whoever they are, says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord is... For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does He withhold. Charles Spurgeon says this, But how is this true? When God sometimes, oftentimes, withholds riches and honors and health of body from men, though they walk ever so uprightly. We may therefore know that honors and riches and bodily strength are none of God's good things. They are a number of the things indifferent which God bestows promiscuously upon the just and the unjust as the rain to fall and the sun to shine. But the good things of God are chiefly peace of conscience and joy in the Holy Spirit in this life, fruition of God's presence and vision of His blessed face in the next. These good things God never bestows upon the wicked and never withholds from the godly. Remember, Peter quotes, sort of rephrases a line from the psalm we read earlier, Psalm 34. If indeed you have tasted the Lord is good, David writes, taste and see that the Lord is good. And again, let's remember David's circumstances, which I don't think anybody in here would call good. Hungry, being chased by a crazy person, having to take up with the enemy but not trusting him so you act like you're crazy, and then you're hiding out in a cave. Is that good? Are those good things? Is David... And... David has already been anointed king. Samuel's already told him, you are God's anointed. You are going to lead the nation. There's not a lot of leading going on. And David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. What's he talking about? And so the hindrance for us seeking the gospel is if we go, you know, I don't, I don't know that I do taste that God is good all the time. Because we have been convinced and lied to that goodness is wrapped up in our circumstances. It depends on whether I'm hungry or thirsty or well-clothed or well-fed or content or happy or comfortable versus... To have the joy and peace that comes from a relationship with God? And do I have the sure and certain hope, which Peter has already talked about, of seeing God face to face one day? Those are God's good things which He does not withhold from the righteous. And have you tasted that? Have you tasted the joy of knowing that your sins have been forgiven and there's nothing that you had to do other than give up and trust in Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you tasted that God is good? 
because that's true whether I'm hungry or thirsty or poorly clothed or poorly housed or there's not enough money at the end of the month or I made a C- minus on a test or worse or the car won't start or I'm fighting with my spouse or the job is lousy or there's no job at all. And buying into a culture's definition of what goodness is is a hindrance to longing for the gospel. But that's not the only hindrance. He says the beginning, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And the reason all those are, are hindrances, four of them have a lot of things in common. Um, they're all divisive issues that we deal with in our heart. The first one's just a general term for evil, malice. Uh, sometimes it's translated wickedness. But then the next four are very specifically relational terms that cause divisiveness between me and someone else in the body of Christ. And those seem to be a hindrance for us longing for the gospel. Because as we said last week, right, if I'm in the habit of sinning, if my filter's not working, then the gunk of selfishness is going to coat my soul and I have no ability to love you. And so he says deceit. You've got to put away deceit because, see, that puts up a wall between you and I. Because deceit means either I'm trying to gain an advantage over you by not being truthful, or I'm trying to keep you from gaining an advantage over me because I'm afraid if I tell you the truth, you'll think less of me. You can't know all those secrets. I can't tell you because then... Right? We start ranking who's better. So deceit is divisive in the body of Christ because we're worried about our standing with one another. I'm either trying to gain an advantage over you or keep you from gaining an advantage over me. That's what deceit does. Hypocrisy. Play acting. It's, it's creating a public impression. I want you to know me as... I don't want you to know me as... Same word that, that Paul used when he confronted Peter in Antioch. Peter had, Peter had, had done a miraculous, impossible thing, showed up at Cornelius' house where it wasn't lawful for him to go because they were Gentiles and he shared the gospel with them. And then when he went back to Jerusalem, they said, wait a minute, this whole Gentile business, we can't do that. And Peter says, yeah, we can and we have to. God has shown me there's no unclean thing. And then he ends up in Antioch and he's eating with everybody. And then some folks from Jerusalem show up and Peter sort of begins to, I don't know what runs through his mind. Forget? Become nervous? I... I'm not going to eat with these people because I want to make a good impression. I want the public to see me a certain way. I want to be a good 
Jew, I guess. And Paul gets in his face and says, you can't do that. That's hypocrisy, Peter. It's not who you are. It's not who God is. Hypocrisy, it's divisive because it's, I'm trying to put up this public front for you, not acting the way I'm supposed to be acting. Envy. You have something I want. Or some characteristic I want. Some attribute that I want. I wish I had your car. I wish I had your family. I wish I had your personality. I wish I had your looks. It goes on and on and on. And if I need something that you have... That's divisive between us. I can't love you sacrificially. I can't give to you. If, you've, if I feel in debt because you have something that I want, how can I give you more? Envy is divisive in the body of Christ. It doesn't allow me to love you the way I'm supposed to love you. Because I'm mad at you. Because I'm ultimately bitter at God because He's bestowed some gift on you that He didn't bestow on me and it's just not fair. And we're back to God's not good again. We've taken our eyes off the gospel. Of the one who had everything and gave it all up and sacrificed for you and I. That we then might be, as Paul says, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul says, don't you understand? You don't need their looks. You don't need their car. You don't need their personality. You don't need their family. I've given you everything you need for joy and peace. So envy's divisive. It doesn't allow me to love you. It just leads me into bitterness because God's not fair. And then slander's even worse. It doesn't just bring something between you and I. It brings something between you and other people. It's not bad enough that, I, that I'm just envious of you. I'm going to talk bad about you to somebody else, and I'm going to build walls not only between the two of us, but between you and everybody else. I'm going to, I'm going to enclose you and circle you off and lay siege to your reputation. And if I don't put that away, how can I long for the gospel which breaks down all of those walls and says... Not only do you love your neighbors yourself, but you love your enemies. Even that one that you so long to slander because they've either done something to you or are something that you wish you were, or they drive you crazy, the gospel says, will you love them? And will you keep your mouth shut? can't long for the gospel when I'm too busy with these petty arguments in the body of Christ where I'm trying to build walls because the gospel breaks those walls down. And so those are the two big hindrances that Peter says we have to overcome to long for the gospel. Do you really believe that God is good? And if you don't, how are you defining goodness? And are you willing to break down those divisive walls that exist in your heart in the form of hypocrisy and deceit and envy and slander. Longing for the gospel means we buy into the definition of what good is according to the Bible. And good is simply while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. That's what's good. All this other stuff is general mercy that God gives to people kind of indiscriminately. And I don't understand His ways. And if we try to figure those ways out, we will go crazy and then we'll bring envy and deceit and hypocrisy and slander back in our lives because we'll start trying to measure and say what's fair, what's not fair. We sang a couple of songs earlier. I want to look at some lines. The writer of this song gets that. At the very bottom of this, he says, He has done great things. So, and he doesn't then mention job and car and family and grades, right? What does he mention next? Lifted up, he defeated the grave. Raised to life, our God is able. The death and resurrection. That's where we go. Those are the great things. We also sang this song a minute ago. Find rest, my soul, in God alone. Amid the world's temptation. See, it's not that rest doesn't come when the temptations go away. Rest comes in the midst of those temptations. When evil seeks to take a hold, I'll cling to my salvation. Do you long for the gospel? The riches come and riches go. That's not what's good. Don't set your heart upon them. The fields of hope in which I sow are harvested in heaven. Are you looking for that day when our salvation will come to fruition? And in the chorus, oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. My delight and my reward. The good thing that I'm after. Everlasting, never failing. My Redeemer, my God. Can we go back to the beginning of that song, Phil? At least here, I don't have all the... Just right there. Oop. Yep. Can we sing that? Can we stand as we close and let's sing that together? I'm not the best one to lead, but I'm going to, so that means you have to sing loud or all you will hear is me.